Welcome to the A Fire podcast. Now streaming on Apple, Google, Spotify, and more. Each episode features real and honest conversations with thought leaders from around the world at all levels of the commercial real estate and investing business, examining the ideas and questions fundamental to the future of our industry. Where are we now? What happens next? What should we do about it? How do we become better investors, leaders, and global citizens? For more, here's your host and the CEO of AFIRE, Gunnar Branson. How do our cities work? How should they work? What are we doing wrong and what can we do better? Richard Florida has helped us all understand our cities through his lectures and books ranging from the rise of the creative class to the new urban crisis. He's a professor and director of cities at the Martin Prosperity Institute at the University of Toronto, a distinguished visiting fellow at NYU's Shack Institute of Real Estate, and the co-founder and editor-at-large of City Lab. So thank you so much, Richard, for joining us on the AFIRE podcast. Thank you, Ghana, for having me. It's a, it's a, delightful, it's a delight to be with you. <laughs> well, thank you. So the, the mess we seem to be in right now in our cities, uh, you know, and a lot of people are talking about it and change in terms of how we're using cities, who's using it, how are they using it. But it, it seems to me, and it's and, and from some of the things that you've said and some of the things that you've written, that this may be uh, a deeper problem than the current crisis of the pandemic. Um, what's going on? What's going on with our cities right now? Well, it's, it's just fascinating for me. Like, I just think this is the most fascinating time in my life. And, and let me tell you, the other night, a couple of weeks ago, I was trying to think back to the origins of this pandemic and think back to the night I was watching that NBA game that Rudy Gobert was diagnosed with coronavirus and the game was canceled. And then very quickly, you know, cities began to shut down, work went remote. And and what's so interesting, Gunnar, is I couldn't force my mind to go there. Like it would not go back. It would not allow me to deal with the trauma. And then I cycle forward to roughly a year later, a little more, but roughly a year later, we really do see light at the end of the tunnel. And I don't want to seem Pollyannish or overly optimistic, but boy, oh boy, it just seems like we're in a much better place than I would have imagined. And that this miracle of, you know, which is this miracle of vaccination with these RNA vaccines right, is just astounding. And, and so I think the main thing is that we can look forward to a better future. And I, you know, I do think this summer is going to be a little bit crazy. And I just want to warn, get ready for what's coming at you, you know, city leaders, and city <laughs> managers and real estate developers. I think there's a lot of pent up energy that wants to be released. But look, I think it's going to be different. And we can dig into that. But but let me say this before we dig in. And, and I'm saying this, you know, I'm a professor, I could speak with people like you and the AFIRE group. I'm very fortunate. But I think for me, there's been a lot of good in this pandemic. And, and, and as much as I don't want to go back to the trauma of those early days, I'm also feeling melancholy about leaving many of the good things. And I, and I want to say that at the outset, because I don't think we want to leave them. You know, spending time with my two young daughters, ages three and five, being a better dad, getting involved, more hands on in their schooling, you know, helping out around the house more. Um, Living in my neighborhood, not going off to the office, but getting to know my neighbors, there's been a lot and getting off the rat race. I think, 
you know, focusing a little bit more on my health and fitness, drinking a little bit less, exercising more. I, I, I think I found something better. So there's trauma and there's better. Mm-hmm. And I think as we move to this next phase, this next normal, we don't want to lose the pain and the suffering and the tragedy that killed millions upon millions of people around the world and you know, hundreds of thousands, we have more than half a million people in, in America. But at the same time, we don't want to lose those good things, those changes in our rhythms, of working and living and in our, our family lives and our neighborhood lives that, that I think the pandemic has brought out a, a good side. So I think we want to balance those and not just rebound to the old ways. Have you given some thought to how, I mean, certainly the experience we've all been through over the last year has been traumatic for some folks more than others, obviously. Um, But there has also been, to your point, a transformation towards some positive things as well. How do you think that will change our behavior once that energy is released, right? So when the energy is released and we are all vaccinated, we're back to normal. But um, how back to normal do you think we actually are going to be? Yes, I have a funny story for you before I get into that. So I went to my first meeting inside a couple of weeks ago, and it was a real estate developer. And I was really scared. And I had had one shot of the vaccine. And it was a real estate developer who I've known for a long time. His name is Albert Ratner. Turns out Albert, I hadn't seen in the better part of a decade. He's now 93 and asked me to come meet with him. And I walked into his hotel room, lovely hotel room, and he had his mask off and his colleagues. And I said, do you mind if I take my mask off? And they all started laughing at me. You know, <laughs> we're all vaccinated. OK. And, and I wasn't ready. So it was really interesting to, to experience that with a 93 year old kind of icon of the industry. Wow. And it, it was my kind of invitation back to normal. Here's what I think. I think we we really are going to experience something very different than most prognosticators have believed. This whole nonsense, and I hate to call anything nonsense, that our cities would empty out, that everyone would move to the countryside, go from New York City to the Hamptons or to Hudson, or, you know, go out to the homes in Miami Beach, a place I love, Palm Beach. You know, we're now finding that all of that was nonsensical, that in fact, when you look at the data, very few people actually, there was there was nothing in the way of a massive urban exodus. You had was a bunch of young kids going home to mom and dad. And and I've always said this acceleration of family formation moves. You know, my mom and dad moved from Newark, New Jersey when I was two. And my brother was, you know, just just about ready to arrive to a small suburban home in suburban New Jersey. Americans have been doing that for decades upon decade. And, you know, that just accelerated people who had kids and were ready to move from cities, maybe over the next several years, move very quickly. We see no evidence of any real urban exodus. Uh, but what we do have is the is the experience of the previous pandemic. And therein is something very interesting. You know, big cities grew. New York grew appreciably after the Spanish flu. Um, L.A. grew like gangbusters. So, yeah, I think there is some move of people to warmer, sunnier climates where they think they're safer. I think there is something to this at the margin. But, you know, I think the big effect of this pandemic is not going to be in where we live. I think there's been so much focus on the reshuffling or resetting of where we live. And everyone gravitates, you know, it's all going to be to the suburbs. It's all going to be to rural America. It's all going to be to small second and third tier cities. And there are push and pull factors. Yeah. Some people will move out to suburbs and rural areas and young people will go back to cities. I think the bigger change is going to be in where we work. And from a real estate perspective, that means less on the residential side and more on the commercial side. 
And I think that's the big resetting. It's going to be this shift to remote work. And we can dig into that if you like a little more. But I think remote work, and it's not going to be all one way. It's not like everyone's going to work remotely five days a week and nobody's going to go to the office. Right. The changes are more subtle and nuanced and they're more an acceleration than a disruption. But I think the changes in how we work are going to be even bigger than the changes in how we live. First of all, I, I want to emphasize no evidence of a mass urban exodus. I, that, that, that's music to my ears. Um, and I love hearing that from you. So thank <laughs> you. Uh, is that OK? So if it's work that we're going to be changing to a certain extent how we work. And, and there's a lot of nuance and subtlety to that, I'm sure, a lot of ins and outs. But here's a question that I have. The CBD is a concept, or at least the CBD as it's understood in North America, is a concept that is a relatively new one. This is not something that for all the ages, we always had shiny office towers in a central place that we only went to for 40 to 60 hours a week. Um, that's a new idea. And is that idea under threat? I, I'm thinking about places like Manhattan, where we have an abundance of real estate that is not being used, uh, even in a non-pandemic time frame, in great part because we, we have this special usage, these very tall, shiny office towers that we use to heat and cool paper that we no longer look at. Um, what is going to happen to our CBDs? So this is actually what I'm writing on. So it's fresh in my mind. I'm trying to write a piece. Hopefully, folks, it will come out sometime in the next year. No, I'm kidding. In the next month or so. <laughs> uh, Jane Jacobs wrote a famous, her most famous book is called The Death and Life of Great American Cities. And I'm titling this The Death and Life of the Central Business District, The Death and Life of the CBD. Um, look, I think this is probably the area where we're going to see the biggest impact of all. Um, as you said, the Central Business District is, say, a century old. Let's give it a century old or a little sure. bit more than that. Concept. A century. It, it really, I think, is part of the Industrial Revolution. People don't think of that that way. But the same way the limits of technology of the day required us to mass factory workers in these giant factories like the steel mills of Pittsburgh or Henry Ford's River Rouge pro, uh, plant in Detroit – the limits of technology required that in order to process information and to you know, make decisions, we had to pack and stack professional office workers and the functionaries that supported us, right? Remember all of the staff functions and the typing pools and the memos and the mimeograph machines that, that supported us in these giant office towers. They were really factories for office work, if the, vertical factories for office work. And now the internet has pulled and pushed at that for a while. But I think that the invention of these new technologies of remote work and the great experiment in using them means that a lot of that stuff that used to require us to be co-located, much of it happening before the pandemic, but the pandemic, you know, putting accelerant on this ongoing change means that we figured out that we don't need to pack and stack everyone in those buildings. And that, in fact, many of us are more productive working some of the time at home. And I'll give you my example. I am far more productive if I'm going to write something or engage in a podcast conversation with you if I'm at home, that I'm in the office and somebody's knocking at the door, coming in, a student's coming in to ask a question, a colleague wants to talk about their research paper. And, and that's all wonderful and important. But if I want to get thinking work or writing work done, I better be at home. And there's a wonderful essay by a venture capitalist named Paul Graham that all of you should read called Makers versus Managers. And his point in that essay, which I make everyone who works with me read, 
is that a manager needs to be in the office and scheduling things every half an hour. A maker, whether that's a software developer or a writer like me, needs blocks of time, say a day in length. And oftentimes if I'm gonna write something, I take two or three days at home to try to finish that. Anyway, the point is Nick Bloom at Stanford estimates that we could get as much as a two and a half percent national productivity uh, advantage through remote work. But that doesn't mean everyone working remotely every day. That means people working, some people working remotely every day, most of us working remotely a day or two a week. So what I think happens, looking at the best research on this, we end up with about a 20% reduction. Some people would say 30, I think that's too much, but it's not like everyone goes to remote work and stays at home and nobody goes to the office. We're looking at, an, at the margin, a 20% shift. Um, the people who get hurt most in that aren't us who can work remotely. It's the service workers and, and restaurant workers and retail workers that work in the shops surrounding the central business district. My hope is that that the life part of the central business district is that we're smart enough to refashion the central business district to make our offices better, healthier, more sustainable, more outside, more wellness, more uh, spaces that we can meet together to make the area surrounding our offices better, more actively curated retail and restaurants, better restaurants, better fitness facilities, then that we can add housing. You know, I think that one of the things we saw in the financial district in New York after 9-11, that as it was rebuilt, it was rebuilt in much more of a, of a live work neighborhood, much more of a 24 by seven neighborhood. And it's become a much better neighborhood. And I think we can rebuild life part. The death in life is I think we can make our central business districts better places. And one additional note, I actually am not at all worried about New York City. People are like, oh, New York City, Midtown, Wall Street. I'm not at all worried about New York City. And here's why. With ongoing Brexit in London, with Hong Kong's trauma from the Chinese government, with the travel restrictions in Toronto, where, where I live, with travel restrictions on other great cities, Sydney, Melbourne, you know, all these European cities, I think that we're going to see global companies have to redeploy functions to New York City. We're already hearing that, that, that they're redeploying, maybe not people, but they're redeploying functions into the New York environment because it's more open, you can travel more easily. And also because young people just love the big city. You know, young people want to be in a big city. Yeah. I'm more worried, and I'm not terrified by this by any means, but I'm more worried about the second and third tier cities. So not as much worried about Chicago or San Francisco than some might be, more worried about Detroit and Pittsburgh, a little more worried about Dayton and Akron. I'm just using these as examples. Yeah. That that I think that the smaller cities are the ones that that are going to have more pressure because because some of those functions have been shifting up to bigger cities. But look, I think the big point of this is that every single city, regardless of size, has to now think really strategically about how to remake its central business district less as a factory for knowledge workers, as these giant vertical office towers, and much more as a live work 24 by 7 complete community. But that's a significant shift when you think about it. I mean, the, the entire identity of cities, even smaller cities, has always been, here's our downtown. This is, this is us. This is our identity. You see pictures of it everywhere. Um, that it, it almost it, it almost feels like we have to re-educate ourselves as to what a city is. You know, I want to tell another funny story. So I've been on a lot of Zooms and a lot of meetings. And, and, and I think this will be, I think this story, as silly as it is, may be illustrative of where we're going. And the picture on the screen is of a man or a woman, very clean cut, 
with a business suit and tie and conservative glasses. And then the Zoom comes on or the Skype or whatever. And because I'm a man, I'm going to, and I think women have done a better job in generally of, of curating their, their appearances. And then comes on the picture of the new person. And the person invariably has either longer hair or a buzz cut, a beard, exchange, a t-shirt, exchange the old glasses for kind of hipper glasses and has this new appearance. And I mean, this is invariable and on a Zoom. So what I think that speaks to is that people have found a sense of their own personal identity and are less likely to want to fit in. It's something I wrote about 20 years ago with youngsters in the rise of the creative class with their tattoos and facial hair. But I think it's become more generalized now. And what I think in the downtown is going to have to become is a much more human experience. Uh, people, and when I say this about business, a day at the office isn't going to be a day at the office where you come and plug in your laptop and go to your cube farm. It's going to become much more experiential and much more like a business trip. And the office is going to have to be like a perk that you offer members of what I call the creative class. It's going to have to be exciting and enticing. There's going to have to be a place where maybe you can work out or you can engage in activities or meet outside with your colleagues. You're going to have to be surrounded by better coffee shops and restaurants where you can take a midday meeting. So it's going to increase the pressure upward on the office experience and on the amenities that surround the office, as well as I think in order to make those neighborhoods more exciting, to increase the residential options in and around them. Now, on the flip side, and I don't want to lose this, I think the even bigger opportunity is to rebuild our suburbs. And, and for folks listening in, AFIRE folks, I, I always tell the same story. I went to visit with WeWork uh, before, well, when they were booming, before the, the imbroglio they hit and before the pandemic. Fortunately, Gunnar, I did not have to do tequila body shots. And one of the things I did in the pandemic is really, <laughs> really stop drinking or cut it back massively. So didn't have to do tequila body shots at WeWork. But I said at that WeWork meeting, I said, why aren't you guys building these co-working facilities in the suburbs? Lots of people, lots of moms and dads are out there. Lots of families are out there. People would like to be able to go to a co-working facility one or two days a week. And they, they laughed me out of the room. Like they thought it was the funniest thing they ever heard. And now when I talk to my friends from WeWork, who are now doing all sorts of interesting things, right? The professionals there were first rate. They're doing all sorts of interesting things in real estate and tech companies. They tell me you were right on, spot on. I think in, in, in a way, the central business district has to become a neighborhood. But in another way, in analogous way, our suburbs have to build neighborhood business districts. What an opportunity to reprogram old office parks and abandoned malls and underutilized main streets to fill them up with the kind of amenities and office work and co-working facilities that were only found in San Francisco or Manhattan or Boston. I'm using those right. examples in a few other places. I think there's an enormous opportunity to bring urban style working and living to the suburbs, which may be the biggest opportunity of all. I agree. And when you think about it, historically, that was typical. The old suburbs, that's kind of how they were designed 100 years ago. And, you know, if you talk to some of these, and I've been talking to a lot of architects because I'm, I'm interested in this, a lot of architects, a lot of commercial developers, you know, there are folks out there saying, take a look at these old mid-century office parks, many of them designed by leading architects, you know, Bauhaus architects or fantastic mm -hmm. American architects that have fallen into disfavor and dysfunction. Well, you could think about anchoring a development with that historic architecture because every, you know, people like that. And you can put your food court in there or your fitness court in there or your co-working facilities, and you can surround that because 
I, I wrote about these in Rise of the Creative Class when they were going out of favor. The idea was you would create these green campuses for researchers and scientists and engineers where they could go and repose and think big thoughts and go for walks. But now that green area can be a neighborhood park and you can fill it up with wonderful new housing development and mixed-use retail. So I think this idea of repurposing some of these wonderful assets that are out in the burbs, and, and obviously they're near good transportation routes, that's why they're where they are, I think there's enormous opportunity. So you could think of, instead of a central business district and a bunch of dormitory suburbs, a, a hub business district, quite central, but then a series of satellite business, neighborhood business districts surrounding it, not all office, of course, mixed use, co-working facilities, great fitness facilities, good restaurants. And it becomes a way of not only remaking our, our metropolitan areas, it takes tra it reduces traffic, takes pressure off transit systems, you know, reduces energy use. Uh, it just leads to a more balanced life. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, however, and, and this is, you know, what would an investor would come back with is that you are you are suggesting a, a pretty fundamental change to the business model of the real estate business. If you're talking about office, it has historically been a 10 to 20 year lease, um, rather passive once they're in, you come up with a good building, good lobby, you're good to go, maybe in an amenity or two. This is not really adding amenities. It's no surprise to me that WeWork is talking about this or that other co-working spaces because they're in the business of managing the office experience. It seems to be demanding of us and the leaders that I've observed are going there, but it's not easy because the business model has to change. I think the business model is changing. I mean, when I wrote Rise of the Creative Class, no one was thinking about this. And I remember the first time I walked into a co-working facility, probably it was Neuhaus or maybe it was, and I said to my wife, Rana, I was making fun of myself. So you folks, you can't see my face, but I looked at her and said, holy shit, sorry for the, I said, holy shit, Rana. <laughs> this creative class thing really works. Like this was what I was imagining in my head, but it, they had taken it to a next level. That this idea of a space that was experiential and filled with amenity and that people could be themselves. Yeah, and I think the pandemic has accelerated that and made many of us older folks like me who are willing to accept the old ways of work say, no, I don't wanna work like that anymore. So I think amenity and experience, and, and maybe the analog for folks, AFIRE folks is, look at what happened to retail. With with the combination of of online, Amazon, Walmart, you know, the uh, shopping moving online, Instacart, Uber Eats. Uh, look at what look at what's happened to retail and what you have to do to get people in the store or the restaurant. It has to become a fantastic experience. You know, my wife says now to get me in a restaurant, it's got to be a and it can be a very unique local experience or it can be a fantastic upscale experience. Mm -hmm. So I think to, the, the office is going through the, the last Maybe education is the last vestige. But one of the last vestiges of this is the office. And I think the office is no longer a building. And I think this is what folks, I think, are thinking about. That is an experience which is neighborhood-based. And I think the smartest developers and the smartest real estate investors are beginning to think about this. The office experience is a neighborhood experience. And I say this you know, in my presentations. The neighborhood is the office. The city is the office. It's no longer the office building. So, yeah, I think that portends... I don't want to say it's massive changes in the business model, but you know, look at the change we saw in the 40s and 50s and 60s. You know, one of my professors was a guy named George Sternlieb, who wrote his dissertation at Harvard on the suburban shopping mall, you know, in like the 1950s. And think about what a shift to the suburban. I remember this in the 50s mm -hmm. and 60s. 
it was a big shift away from downtown shopping to the suburban shopping mall. I don't think this is as big of a shift as that, but I think it requires people thinking of the office experience or the work experience as a much more amenity-rich and experiential way of working. Well, and also the shifting away from, think about, especially, say, from 1950 until 2000, how the office experience, you went there, you you went directly to the office, you stayed in the office, there wasn't that much outside, outside of a few very fortunate cities, there wasn't much in the way of amenities outside of the office building, especially if you were in a suburban office park. But essentially, your experience was going into a box and then leaving the box, and there was very little around it. And it was horrible. I mean, we didn't like it. Nobody... And that's just why I wrote Rise of the Creative Class, you know, back in the year 2000, 2002. It was horrible. And, and what I began to see in Silicon Valley in that day was people saying, no, I don't want to work in that environment. I want a more flexible environment. I want to go to work and go for a bike ride. And knowledge, it wasn't just epiphenomenal. Knowledge work actually requires these periods of resetting and recharging. The going for a walk or getting an espresso or going for a bike ride is actually about resetting your ability to focus and concentrate and do great stuff. The other thing that struck me, and this was again 20 years ago, when we were living in Washington, D.C., is it became hard for me to see, say, in Capitol Hill or the area around DuPont Circle, like who was working and who wasn't working. Mm. Like it just looked like there were people and they weren't dressed up and not everyone had a tie on. And then, you know, when we began to live more in New York City, you know, we lived downtown and, and I like, well, who's going to work and why doesn't anyone look like they're going to work anymore? And you go to meetings and people wouldn't have a tie. And I think I think there is this I don't want to call it casualness. There is this new way of living and working that is very different. And but I don't think it's just a trend and I don't think it's about people wanting to look different. I actually think that knowledge work. I'm a knowledge worker. I know my rhythms. I can't sit in front of a computer and spew out text. I need to go for a walk. That's why there was always philosophers walks. Yeah. I need to get a coffee. I, I need to talk to colleagues occasionally. I need to go to a restaurant and have an experience. It makes me better at what I do. So I think this isn't just people wanting to have fun. I actually think these changes in the office and the changes in the way we live are due to changes in how we work. If we work with our minds, we work at a different rhythm and speed and pace than my dad who worked in a factory or someone who pushed paper because they had to push that paper to support knowledge work. So I think the way we're reconfiguring the way we live and work has a lot to do with the underlying change in our economy from an older industrial model to a newer knowledge economy. And, and that is a real conceptual shift. That's part of what I, I, I find so fascinating about it, to go from this is what an office building is to this is what a knowledge worker is. How do we wrap the building or provide the building that makes the most sense for them or the environment? Um, it's fascinating. You're absolutely right when you say that it's an environment for knowledge work, not and the environment has to be wrapped around that, not an office to do work in. And I think that change is dawning on people now, that people are beginning to see. And look, these adjustments take a long time. If you look back at the Industrial Revolution, you know, by the time Frederick Taylor emerged with time and motion studies and the time Henry Ford emerged with the mass production assembly line, we were 50 years, a century or more into the Industrial Revolution. We're still very early into the shift towards knowledge work. Peter Drucker identified it in the 1950s. If you look at the data, and which I've done, the knowledge revolution, or what I call the creative economy, takes off around 1980. So we're 40 years into this. It's not surprising, but I think in terms of real estate development and real estate investing, that's the appropriate. What is the environment 
that is conducive to knowledge work? What is the environment? And that's where you get real advantage. The places that can create those, let's use a fancy word, ecosystems. The places that can build up those ecosystems for effective knowledge work, the developers that can do that, the real estate groups that can do that, or the cities and communities get real first mover advantage. And, and one of the things I'm seeing now is not only this happening in great cities, but there are a variety of rural areas, suburban areas that are beginning to think about this in, in, in new ways. How do I build that ecosystem that is appropriate and effective for this new group of knowledge workers, including a subset, roughly 20%, of remote workers. We're going to have to pause here in this interview with Richard Florida and pick it up again in part two, where we will discuss, among other things, Jane Jacobs, impact investing, affordability, and how government institutions and real estate can better work together for the future of our cities. You've been listening to the AFIRE podcast. Remember to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform, including Apple, Google, Spotify, and more. AFIRE is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice through this podcast. No content included here is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any asset. Some information, including the AFIRE podcast, may have been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable. AFIRE is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information. The opinions expressed in the AFIRE podcast are those of its respective contributors and do not necessarily reflect those of AFIRE. To learn more about the AFIRE podcast, including underwriting guest opportunities, visit afire.org slash podcast.